1 Samuel chapter 18, we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel that we're calling the king we need. And we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're actually going to look at uh, two chapters today. Um, yes, two chapters. Uh, I'll try to keep it within 45 minutes. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 18 to begin our time together. So if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. And I hope you do that week after week with some sense of excitement that we have Bibles, that we have the word of God in front of us. God has not left us alone in the world to wonder who he is or what he requires of us. He has given us his word. He's given us this precious treasure that we get to stand and we get to read, not as if Jesus were here, but because Jesus is here speaking to us. So hear the word of Christ. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and, he, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Oh God, I pray today that you would teach us according to your word, by the power of your spirit, that we would hear the gospel, and we would not just be those who uh, are here today knowing more about Jesus, but as we have just heard, it would please you by your spirit to give us Christ with your spirit to help us see Christ, to know Christ personally as our Lord and Savior. God, we don't just want to fill our minds with another story. God, we want to fill our minds with Christ. And so we look into his story now. Teach us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe be seated. Saturdays in the fall, uh, kind of a tradition that I have with uh, my sons, is we spend basically the whole day watching college football. We bring all the TVs up to the living room and we watch as much football as we can possibly uh, take in every Saturday in the fall. Hours upon hours just sitting around, relaxing, getting ready for Sunday, watching football. Uh, and many of you know this, we are really big Tennessee fans, uh, and we have been in depression most of this college football season. Uh, you're probably wondering, why are you still watching football this year uh, if you're a Tennessee fan? There's really no reason to do so. But yesterday morning, as we began our day, we were watching the SEC Network, and they decided to bring a little joy into my life. They showed three historic passes uh, 
in the program, in the University of Tennessee football program, uh, three historic passes in Tennessee history. And the first pass, the first highlight they showed was the 1998 National Championship game where T. Martin throws to Peerless Price and we beat Florida State. And I was actually watching that game in the home of an Alabama fan. So I was, uh, that, that whole game has significance for me because I was able to smack talk to an Alabama fan and we won the National Championship by beating Florida State. And I know some of you aren't sports fans, so just hold on. We'll get back to the Bible in just a little bit. (laughs) The second pass was a Hail Mary pass just a couple years ago from Josh Dobbs to Jawan Jennings in the end zone. No time on the clock to beat Georgia. And that's not what happened yesterday. Uh, That happened several years ago. And then the last pass was last year, right before halftime, playing the University of Kentucky Wildcats. I was at the game with two of my sons and Patrick Fusen, and there was another Hail Mary, just throw it up in the air, catch right before halftime that sort of sealed the game as the game went on, and we were able to beat Kentucky when we weren't supposed to. Now, that has significance to me because I was there with Patrick Fusen, who's a Kentucky fan, and my two sons. It was just a moment of exhilaration that we'll never forget. And so as these highlights are rolling, as as they're scrolling through, there's just that that happiness and joy. Tennessee's having a horrible season, and you just remember how good it was. You remember good things about this program. But as I mention those things, some of you are Georgia fans, some of you are Kentucky fans, maybe some Florida State fans here. You, You didn't have the same sort of happiness Some of you, when I said last year at the UK game, you just shut me off. You're rolling your eyes. You don't want to hear anything about this. You didn't experience happiness and joy over Tennessee's success in those moments like I did. As I recounted the highlights, you got a little irritated with me. Some of you still won't look me in the eyes because you're thinking about that. Thinking, well, why is he beginning a sermon this way? Isn't this kind of cheesy? You, you experienced anger. You experienced frustration. You turned around and were whispering to your friends about how horrible Tennessee is. Some of you looked over and said, well, let's show some basketball highlights for the last hundred years where Kentucky's been so awesome. Why aren't you talking about that? You experienced the emotion of jealousy. In that moment, you experienced anger, frustration, and jealousy. And that, that's exactly what we see in this chapter with Saul. The the next few chapters are sort of a highlight reel of King David. And and they begin with Goliath. Last week, we we saw the giant slayed, Goliath, the, the slingshot stone to the head, the sawing off of the neck. We saw the giant go down. And now, one after another, that we're going to see an account of all of David's victories. And we're going to see how different people react to David's success as God's king, as he makes conquest over his enemies. But as we see that, we see one emotion from Saul. We see one response from Saul. And it is anger, it is frustration, it is jealousy. He sees God's king marching forward. 
And he sees his success because the Lord is with him. And over and over in the next two chapters, we see him seething with jealousy. In the section that we just read as we began our time together, we see Saul's son, Jonathan. And we haven't really heard from Jonathan in a couple of chapters. He is the one who has gone with reckless abandonment to fight against the Philistines. He has fought in the name of the Lord. He is unlike Saul, who is very passive, who's protecting himself. He is a warrior in the name of the Lord. And so as he stands before David and Saul, David has returned with the giant's head in his hand. And he's standing there, blood dripping. I have killed our enemy. Saul may be jealous, but notice Jonathan's response to this bloody mess. As soon as he finished speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan, the king's son, heir to the throne, sees David's victory, and he says, yes, That's our man. That is the one we need. That is the warrior. And the text says he loved him as his own soul. That you could even translate this as they became soulmates. There is a bond here that is hard to describe between Jonathan and David. That they they became knit together in a way that, that, that is even hard to describe over the conquest of the enemy. But notice what Saul did in verse 2. He took him. He took David that day. And he would not let him go to his father's house. And we are reminded what Saul does to people who can serve him. He uses them. He brings David into his home and says, you're not going anywhere. I'm going to keep you close to me. And we begin to see a little paranoia with Saul here. And then in verse 3, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. This would have been a legal binding sealed with the blood of animals. You would take the animals and you would, you would cut them in half. And you would stand before one another. And you would say, if I refuse to be loyal to you, the same thing that happened to these animals will happen to you and I. We will be cut in half. He binds himself to David in this way. He makes a covenant with him. Notice it says, because he loved him as his own soul. He loves him as he would love himself. And then he begins to take off his robe. And he begins to take off his weapons. And he gives them over to David in an act of surrender. Now, so often people come to this text and they make so much of David and Jonathan's friendship that we miss what's going on here. And we're gonna talk about their friendship next week. But what's going on here is not just a scandalous friendship between men, it is scandalous surrender. Jonathan is heir to the throne. Jonathan deserves to be the next king. And yet he sees his king standing before him and he surrenders to him. He gives him his weapons. I'm not gonna fight against you. You're my king. He gives him his robe, his belt. He says, you deserve the throne, not me. And here we see a picture of what it means to surrender to Jesus. Just as Jonathan saw the anointed king defeat the giant, we hear today of an anointed king who has defeated sin and death on our behalf. 
We hear of a Savior who has suffered and bled for our sin on a cross, and we say, I could never do that myself. I I could never die for my sins. We hear of a Jesus who has been raised from a first century coffin, and we say, I can't can't raise myself from the dead. I don't want to face death alone. We hear of a Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God, and what our response today is to be is surrender. Is to say, I I don't deserve to be king. I can't do anything about my sin. I can't do anything about death. I don't deserve to be seated at the right hand of God. Only he does. And it's a picture of faith here and what it means to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. To stop fighting him. And notice how it's described, his loyalty. He loved him as his own soul. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus would say, take up your cross and follow me. Love me more than you love your own life. That's what it looks like to trust him, to have faith in him, is to love him more than yourself. And you know what it means to surrender to him? All of the time and energy you would use to serve yourself, you begin to serve Jesus. You wake up every morning and you say, how can I have more me time? No, you wake up in the morning and you say, how can I use my time to serve Jesus? You wake up in the morning, you say, how can I make more money today? No, you wake up in the morning, you say, how can I leverage whatever I make and whatever I already have for the name of Jesus? That's what it means to surrender to him, to say, I'm not fighting you anymore. I surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you ever had that moment where you said, I don't deserve to be king. Only he deserves to be king. As we continue in chapter 18, we see David goes out to battle. And he comes back home after winning a lot of battles and killing a lot of people. And the people of Israel who hate the Philistines, they are enamored with him. And notice verse 6. And they were coming home, the soldiers. And when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities and they are singing and they are dancing to meet King Saul with the tambourines and with songs and joy and musical. This is the first ever homecoming parade. Cheerleaders, marching bands. Verse 7, the women sang and they celebrated. And notice what they are singing. Saul has struck down thousands and David tens of thousands. And notice Saul's response. He was angry and he began displeased with David. We begin to see his anger welling up and he is seething toward toward David. And notice what he says. They ascribe David ten thousands. In me they have only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Now in the Hebrew... The the language simply says concerning the cheers, David and Saul, David and Saul have killed tens of thousands. But notice the way Saul heard it. Oh, they're saying David has killed more men than me. All he hears is David's name associated with his victory. Remember when Jonathan started killing Philistines who got the credit? Saul. And now he's irritated that David's name is in lights alongside his. It should just be Saul. It should just be me. 
I'm the one running this ship. I'm the one who's in charge. And notice verse 9, he eyed him. He eyed him with a jealous eye. And then in verse 10, we see this harmful spirit arrives again upon Saul. God has judged Saul with this spirit. And it drives him crazy. He's turned over to his self-centeredness. And he's able to live with the worst version of himself and deal with how sinful he is. And it rushes upon him in verse 9. And he raved within the house. Literally, he prophesied in the house. He's just sort of out of his mind muttering about the kingdom of God. Notice while David was playing the lyre or the harp. Now remember in the last chapter what this was to do for Saul? It was to bring him peace. And now all of a sudden David, the man of peace and the instrument of peace, is bringing him angst and frustration and he is angry. And notice what he did. Day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand. And so he's got his spear and he hears David and, and, and that background noise of the harp that once brought him peace and that spirit would leave. He's got his spear in his hand. And now that he has seen David's success, what, what is going on? He is seething. His, his anger is building. In verse 11, Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin him to the wall. I will drive this spear through this man and pin him to the wall. The one that is to bring him peace. The the music that is to bring him peace. He says, I will destroy it. And notice why. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. The writer gets to the heart of the matter. David's beginning to, or Saul's beginning to understand what's going on. He has the spirit that I once had. He is God's anointed king. He is the one God has chosen. And he says, I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to pin him to the wall like a deer. He's going, to, he's going to be stapled to the wall like a trophy. David escapes. But then what does Saul do? He removes him from his presence. What was to bring him peace? Get out of here. And he puts him a commander over a thousand. He demotes him so that he can squash his name. He's jealous of David. I want to ask you the question today, are you jealous of Jesus? Some of you would never say, yes, I'm jealous of Jesus. He's Jesus. I mean, how can you be jealous of Jesus? He's good. He's right. All these great stories about what he did. How can I be jealous of Jesus? He died on the cross for my sins. That's why I'm here today. But, but has in your heart that, that feeling of jealousy when someone else gets the promotion Have you ever had that feeling about Jesus? When someone's kid gets to play in the game instead of your kid, and you get angry, and you begin to seethe, have you ever had those feelings about Jesus? You see, we gather here today, and the the whole purpose of you being here today is to make much of Jesus, to sing songs about Jesus, to talk about Jesus. But when I tell you Monday through Saturday, it's to be the same way about Jesus. Even though you're not here, you're to make a big to-do about Jesus every day. To some of you, it would be like your best friend saying, you know, we celebrated my birthday so well. The cake was so good. All the people that were there, I was so happy. We're going to just do that every day. We're going to celebrate my birthday every day. 
you would look at that person and you would go, you're crazy. You're insane. But some of us do the same thing with Jesus because we're jealous of him. When Jesus says you can't be the hero, you go, no, I want to be the hero. I'll give you Sunday. I'll sing six songs on Sunday. And some of you, that's too much. Like, let's cut one or two out so I can get to Cracker Barrel. But, but you say, that, that's, that's, that's just too much. Monday through Saturday, it's all got to be about Jesus, my family, my money. Everything's got to be about Jesus. No, I, I can't do that because you're jealous of Jesus. You don't want it to be all about Jesus. You want some of it to be about you. You want some of it to be about your name. That's why when I tell you that you can't save yourself Only the cross, resurrection, and the power of the kingdom and the spirit can save you from your sins. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. But some of it's got to be about me. I mean, do you know who I am? I was in church three days after I was born. RAs, Mission Friends, Awana, Centrifuge, Campus Ministry. Do you know who I am? Surely I'm going to get to Jesus. He's going to say, you did a great job. I'm going to give you a little credit for this. No, it's not about you. And if you're jealous of Jesus, you don't understand the gospel. If you want it to be about you, you don't understand saving faith. Because it's got to be all about Jesus or you can't be saved from your sins. You can't know the kingdom. And then we begin to see in verses 14 through 15 a summary that's going to happen over and over in the next two chapters. In verse 14, we see David has success. And then we see Saul sees his success. And then what does he do? He is in fear. And Israel loves him. In those three verses, we see success. Saul gets angry. And the people love him. And that's a response we're going to see throughout these two chapters. And this leads Saul in verses 17 through 19 to concoct a plan to manipulate David. He says, I'm tired of him winning. All he does is win. And I'm tired of it. So I'm going to put an end to this. And, and I know I'm a bad shot with the spear. He's evaded me twice. I've tried to kill him. I can't kill him with my own hands. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send him out to battle. Over and over again, I'm going to send him to kill Philistines. Now, who does that later on in the story? To Uriah, David. Saul does this to David. He says, go kill as many men as you possibly can. And he says, for doing that, I'm going to give you one of my daughters. I'm going to allow you into my family. What is he doing? I can't kill you with my own hands, but I'm going to keep you close to me. I'm going to put one of my daughters in your own home. And then you're going to be there for Thanksgiving and Christmas. You're going to be seated right next to me. Y'all go tell David how much I love him. I know the spear thing, but I do really love him. And I want him in my house. I want him in my kingdom. I want him a part of my family. You give him one of my daughters. And then all of a sudden we realize Saul didn't even understand that his oldest daughter was already taken. How aloof this man is. But notice verse 20 as we continue. Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. She was probably one of the women praising him. And this is probably has irritated Saul to this point. Why do you like this shepherd boy so much? But now he has a plan. 
And now he says, okay, this fits right into what I want to do. I have an inroad. In verse 21, Saul said, let me give her to him. This, this young daughter, naive daughter, I'll put her in his home. And she'll be a snare, a distraction from him at the hand of the Philistines. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. I finally got a daughter for you. It's a mistake. Paperwork went bad last time. Here is the one you can marry. Verse 23, Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? This is a high honor. If I'm David, I'm thinking the guy's tried to kill me twice. I'm getting out of town. But notice his even loyalty to Saul. He says, I'm a poor man of no reputation. And we're thinking, no, you're the anointed king of Israel. And then Saul said, you shall say to David, the king has no, has, desires no bride price except a hundred foreskin of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. That's in the Bible. He says, I don't want you to pay me anything. I just want you to circumcise some Philistines with your sword and you bring me proof back. And what does David do? Not just 100 Philistines. He brings back these grotesque trophies. Saul probably thought, there's no way he's going to do this. He's going to be killed before he returns. And then he returns with two bags of Philistine grotesque fleshly trophies to say here you go Saul all he does is win all he does is win and it irritates Saul again we see another one of those summaries where where David is winning and Saul is irritated but he's still here trying to think about how he can concoct a plan to to trap David I can't defeat him. I'm not going to surrender to him, but I'm going to keep him close to me. I'm going to give him one of my daughters. I'm going to negotiate a plan at arm's length. That's what he does. That's what some of you are doing here today. You come here and you say, I need what goes on here more than I don't need it. I need these people. I need friends. I, I, I need the fellowship. I mean, my kids need to grow up in church. They need this good stuff. And I really want to go to heaven when I die. But surrender everything? I'm not going to do that. And because you can't defeat Jesus, what you've decided to do is keep Jesus close to you. And you said a prayer. And you went through some motions. And you started going to church. And you say, I've got him close to me, but I'm not going to surrender to him because I still want to do what I want to do. And so most of the time, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you think you've tricked Jesus. You think you've escaped his authority. You can do what you want to do because you went through some motions and you're still going to go to heaven. And you got him close to you. That's not saving faith. And by the way, those plans fail because eventually you're going to do everything you want to do. Eventually, you will turn your back on such fake religiosity. Eventually, you will walk away from this 
if you've never surrendered to Jesus, if you've never said, he is my king, he is my Lord, he, he is the only one that can save me from my sin, he's the only one that can save me from death, and you bow before him as your king, and in that moment, you, you surrender to his authority now, and you get his kingdom for eternity. Full surrender is what he calls for. In chapter 19, yes, we're finally there. Chapter 19, it begins with a cabinet meeting with Saul and his men gathered around him. And what's on the agenda for this week? Kill David. He's going public. He's making it a platform of his rule. Saul, what are we about this week? Well, we're going to kill the shepherd boy. We're going to put more than spears in his back. And Jonathan hears the plans. Jonathan, whose soul is knit to David, in verse 4, he he goes to Saul and he speaks well of David to Saul. And he says in verse 4, let not the king sin against his servant. He says this would be sin because all David has done to you is good. David has served you. David has killed the Philistines for you. David has brought great glory to your kingdom, Saul. It would be sin to kill him. Verse 5, for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine, the giant. And he worked a great salvation for Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. You were happy, but Saul was happy for himself. And notice what he says here. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? This goes against God's law. You can't do this, Saul. You will, be, you will be guilty of death if you do this. And Saul turns to Jonathan and he says, as the Lord lives, he will not be put to death. And then we see again a replay of the highlight reel. I'm not going to kill him. But then David goes out and wins more, kills more Philistines, more enemies, and Saul begins to seethe in anger this time. And he, he has his spear there. And, and, and he slings and launches the spear again at David. And we're thinking, David, what are you doing, man? Why are you still there? And at this point, David says, I'm out. I'm gone. And he runs home. And Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him. Michal's house and David's house. But notice verse 11, the second part. His wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tomorrow, you will be killed. And so Michal let David down through the window, and he fled, and he escaped. And in verse 13, she took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on it, and its head covered with cloths. Now, this image is actually an idol. It's an idol shaped like a person. And we see here that Saul's family is full of all kinds of dysfunction. Why is his daughter carrying around an idol? And and she goes through this almost cartoonish scene of putting it in the bed with goat's hair in there. In verse 14, when Saul's messengers, they came to take David, she said, he is sick. And so she lies. See something about her character here. Then Saul sent the messengers to David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And the messengers came in, behold, the image, the idol was there with the pillow of goat's hair in its head. And Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And she said, he said, let me go. Why should I kill you? 
He was going to kill me, Saul. We, we see her character is marred here. She's just like her dad. She serves herself. But in both of these stories with Jonathan and Saul's daughter, Michal, what we see are two willing to risk their lives for David. And it causes family dysfunction. We see the separation of family here. And I'll ask you the question today, are you experiencing any dysfunction in your life because you're a Christian? Jesus said to us, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And a sword that will separate families. Fathers will be separated from their sons. Mothers from their daughters over my kingdom. And what he means by that is me coming into your life, you can't just go on in status quo. Things are going to be shaken up a little bit. You're going to be pulled by your allegiance to Jesus away from very strong allegiances. Your family can be torn at times over the gospel. Even in your home, as you think about your money, sometimes you're, you're, you're looking at your money and you're saying, why are we giving to missions? I would rather do this. And there's tension in the home because of the gospel because you have to make choices over the kingdom or self. Sometimes it's over time. So sometimes your spouse is, why are you spending so much time with all the Christians? Why are you spending so much time serving church? Why, why are you doing it? Sometimes it's parents. What, what do you mean going on a mission trip? It's not what I sent you to college for. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Gospel, Jesus, the Bible says. Yeah, 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 yeah. Career, degree. And sometimes there's tension even in the home. And, and some of your kids are looking at you today going, you still believe that Christian thing you taught us growing up? You, you still believe that stuff? Antiquated, worldview. Come on, mom and dad. Let's catch up with the times. And even in the home, there is tension over the gospel. I wonder today, are you feeling any tension because you've decided to follow Jesus? Or is everything copacetic Monday through Saturday? Everything's just fine. Or are you having conversations where you're having to say, that's not what Jesus would have me do? And, and there's, there's a little strain in the relationship. We live in a culture now where gossip, backbiting, slander, it's just a part of the culture to make it. Has gossip, slander, backbiting ever been directed at you because you're a Christian? You walk into work and you serve others. You're kind to others. You share the gospel with others. And you become alienated because you're a Christian. That's what the kingdom does here. It even splits this family up. And then in the last section of verse 19, or chapter 19, we, we see this almost parody of Saul's life. He's looking for David. David has escaped, and David goes down to Ramah. He goes down to these villages in Ramah, and he's hiding out. And Saul sends his messengers in. Go find that guy. And he does this twice. And every time his messengers, the word messenger in the text, look at it, is very, very important. Because in Ramah, there are these messengers of the kingdom, prophets. And they're talking about the kingdom of God. They're prophesying about the kingdom of God. And God does this humorous thing. 
As Saul's messengers come into the town and they're saying, where's David? Where's David? The Spirit of God overpowers their, these messengers and they begin to talk about God's kingdom. Probably even talking about David. They're probably standing up saying, David is king. David is king. And Saul finally says, y'all can't do anything. I'm going to have to do this myself. And Saul rushes down to Ramah. And you know what Saul ends up doing? Prophesying. And it's the same thing he did when he became king. Remember he goes looking for Samuel and he can't find him? The spirit comes over him and he begins to declare the kingdom is at hand. Now he is declaring the kingdom is at hand, but it's in David. Notice verse 23. And he went there to Naoth of Ramah, villages of Ramah. And the spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth, Ramah. Can you imagine Saul walking down to Ramah, walking down to these villages? I'm going to kill this guy. I'm, going to, I, I, I'm taking matters into my own hand. And as he gets closer to Ramah, he's going, David is king. David is king. The kingdom is at hand in David. Probably with a, a smile on his face and happiness in his heart. One who was angry. The spirit has overwhelmed him. And then verse 24, he too stripped off his clothes. He just gets naked. And he prophesied. That's funny. And he prophesied before Samuel. And he lay naked all day and all night. And, and, and people began to say, oh no, is Saul now a prophet? Remember that was said about him when he became a king? The kingdom's at hand. Oh, Saul's a prophet now? Oh, Saul is a prophet laying naked in the street? Now we see the reputation of prophets, just crazy guys muttering about the kingdom. But it's a parody of Saul's life. And here in this last section, what God is saying, it is, it is insane. It is foolish to oppose the kingdom of God. All barriers are down, but the Spirit of God and the Spirit protects David until David... Uh, until Saul is laying naked in the street muttering about God, muttering about the kingdom of God. And the point here is it is foolish to rebel against the kingdom of God. You see, David has proven he's the king Israel needs. He's defeating the enemies. He can't be stopped. He's destroyed the giant. He is the kingdom who brings in peace. It's foolish for Saul to reject it. Now he's an idiot in the street, muttering like a moron. And what God is saying is it's just as foolish for you to oppose Jesus. It's insane today to oppose Jesus. It's the most foolish decision you will ever make. The book of Proverbs would call us idiots, morons for opposing Jesus. Because it makes all the sense in the world. Jesus has proven he's the king you need on the cross. He has died for your sins. Either he's the fool for doing that or you're the fool for rejecting him. One or the other today. Because he was executed without any reason, without any cause. That, that, that's the way you look upon Jesus if you don't receive him today. Either he's the fool or you are. Jesus is the great death slayer. He's the only one who's ever defeated death. He's the only one who, who has risen in glory from a first century coffin, breathing, standing at the right hand of God right now. Either he's the fool or you are. 
Either I'm the fool for telling you it's true and it's what you need, or you are for rejecting it. He is at the right hand of God. Either God's the fool for placing him there, or you are. The point is, it's utter foolishness to reject Jesus today. To stand before him and say, I have no need of that, is idiotic. It's moronic. It it doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's what he calls us to do today. You see, some of you today, you would say, I would never admit that I'm jealous of Jesus. But let me ask you how you live your life. Stealing glory day after day. And when this message, even today, rears its head in your life, you want to just push it aside and move on. I've got some good news today if you would say that you're jealous of Jesus. Saul missed David in his anger, but your sin did not miss Jesus. It pinned him to a cross. Your jealous anger pinned Jesus to the cross. God protected David from Saul's sin, but he did not protect Jesus from your sin. The anger that Saul felt toward David has no, it doesn't doesn't even begin to compare to the anger that God had toward your sin. And God allowed Jesus to feel the full brunt and weight of judgment and anger for your sin against him, for your jealous sin against God. And what you deserve for trying to be king was unleashed upon Jesus, pinning him down in death and despair and placing him in the grave. For your sin, Jesus laid his weapons down. He surrendered for you. He made a covenant with his own blood. He knit his soul to those who would believe in him and trust in him. He has given him his robe of righteousness. He has given you his kingdom when you believe in him. You see, today you really want to be exalted. In just a little bit, you want to be exalted. You want to have a name for yourself. Let me tell you how to have a name for yourself. Repent of jealousy. Turn, and you will be exalted in Jesus. Jesus' name will last forever. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. It's foolishness to reject him. But if you believe in him, you will be exalted with him. The only question is, is that okay with you? Is that okay with you to be exalted with Jesus? When you surrender to his kingdom, that is exactly what happens. And I plead with you today to believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Follow him. Surrender to him. Let's pray.